The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Baloo, Sue Kalinske. Sue, what's going on? What's going on? I'm actually entertaining my nephew and his girlfriend. They are here from Hawaii. Wow. They live in Hawaii? They live in Hawaii. He's wow. in the military. Okay. Um, he's a linguist. Uh, he learned Chinese. And um, wow. he's a translator. That is like a money. I always say, if you're going to send your kid to college, one of the things you should learn Mandarin, learn Chinese, because man, there is money in that. Yeah. So they're, um, they're actually a very interesting couple. He's a um, cyclist and she is too. And there's, um, there's this indoor cycling competition. That's an Olympic sport. Oh, I've seen it. It's crazy. It's where the bikes almost go sideways around this little loop. She's, she's, um, she's trying to get into the Olympics. She's doing a trial. Wow. That's why they're here. Yeah. That's amazing. That's yeah, amazing. So, so if her timing, if her trials are, you know, up to speed, so to speak, um, she'll she'll move up to the next level and um, see what happens. I want to say, because I've done a bunch of Olympics, I want to say that's called a velodrome. Yes, it is. Is it? It is. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's like so it's like 20 minutes from where we live in Long Beach. Who knew there was a velodrome? near Long Beach. Uh, all right, we got a great guest coming up, Saul Rubinek. I cannot wait to talk to him. He's in the movie Blackberry uh, and has done so much in his career. So that's coming up for you. In the meantime, how about this, Sue? Meghan Markle was faking it. What? So she's doing a podcast for Spotify. I, I left that out there just, just because. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so she's doing a podcast for uh, Spotify, and it has been ended. So as it turns out, she was faking interviews. So what she was doing is interviews were handled by her staff. Then they dubbed in the questions in post-production. Now, is that, could you imagine doing that? Like, for example, for us, we are we have somebody, somebody on our staff. We have an mm-hmm. enormous research staff, and all the people that we work with. Actually, Tucker's sitting right is beside me. Sophie and yeah. Ron are in the next room. <laughs> so, uh, but can you imagine a, a staffer doing an interview with a famous person, then afterwards having the questions dubbed in by you and I? That is so bizarre. I mean, that does not help her cause. Like if people didn't hate her already. Yeah. Oh my God. Isn't that terrible? So when did that come out? Came out uh, this week. The The deal ended, they they canceled the deal last week. And then this week it comes out that she was totally faking these interviews and other people were doing the interviews and she was just adding questions afterwards. It's awful. I mean, Bill Simmons said recently, who's a friend of mine, does a big, big time podcast. Um, Bill said they're grifters. I really do think they're grifters at the end of the day. They tried to get this Spotify deal was for a lot of money. 
And then she's totally faking the interviews. It is, that is grifter mode right there. Right. Well, it makes you question everything about them now. Yes. You know, her as mental if health. I wasn't, as if I wasn't already questioning everything Right, but about the them. mental health and, and all these accusations that she was just making stuff up and playing victim and all of that. Yeah. I mean, now you, you can't believe anything that this woman no, does or no, even really both can't. of them. You really can't. All right. One more thing. So, uh, how many articles of clothing do you think you bought last year? I would say maybe 20. Okay. What do you think the average American, how many articles of clothing they buy in a year? By the way, I think for me, it's like five. I think mm-hmm. I bought like a couple of Lakers hoodies and that was it. So what do you think the average American, how many articles of clothing do they buy in a year? You bought 20. I bought five. Um, it's a, you know, it's such a tricky question because what's the average American? Sure. Um, you know, it's, it, there's such a range of people that can afford to buy clothes and then people who buy clothes every day. But in other words, so people who bought, you know, a thousand pieces of clothes, average, uh, average is out my five. So what do you think the average person? Okay. Yeah, I get it. Um, I would say a hundred. Really? It's 70. I think that's correct. I don't think I know a person who bought 70 articles of clothing in a year. I guess because I know so many people who are clothes whores. Oh, do you? And they, they have something delivered to their house, probably multiple things delivered to their house. Every day. Amazon? Amazon. Yes. Yeah. My designer, yeah. Amazon. Yeah, that's right. They do, they do my entire wardrobe for <laughs> I know, me. It's like Target. Target. Amazon. Yeah. So, uh, oh, well, so you've, you've got friends who are clothes horses. It's a better word. Clothes horses. Okay. <laughs> close, isn't, is clothes horses a thing? Well, clothes horse, yeah. But yeah, I say horse. horse. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you once, you well, you know, whore, it's, 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 it's like, I, you know, I mean, I, I know a lot of people who order so much stuff from Amazon that like I'll go to their house and I'll see packages and I was like, what did you get? And they said, I, I have no idea. I got to say, we are a household like that. I see boxes come in all the time. I don't, I order some of it, but I don't order like the normal, like household staples. There's, there's boxes coming in. And I, I have no idea. Juan is busy. He's getting stuff for the house and we're getting ready for our big party on July. So there's a lot of boxes coming in and going. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, 70 articles of clothing. I think Juan bought one. I bought five. We're dragging down the average a lot. Uh, I would think Juan would be more of a shopper for nope. some reason. Just he is so, he has been saying for years, I need to buy new clothes. I need to buy new clothes. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, our 70 articles of clothing. That is stunning to me. All right. Uh, right now, here we go. Film, television, theater. Our guest today has done it all. He has starred in movies like Against All Odds, The Bonfire of the Vanities, Unforgiven, and True Romance. For television, he starred on HBO's Landmark series, and the band played on. He has also appeared on shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm, Warehouse 13, The Last Tycoon, and Schitt's Creek. His current film is Blackberry, about the rise and fall of the gadget we all used before the iPhone. Saul Rubinek joins us. Saul, thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. You, you've got such an amazing career. I'm not even sure where to start. So let's start with your latest movie, Blackberry. 
So I loved my BlackBerry back in the day. The iPhone is great, but the BlackBerry had the very best keyboard. Did you ever use a BlackBerry yourself? No, you know, in those days, it was like a business phone. Uh, and people were using it uh, more for more for that. I was just communicating with uh, my family. And I don't remember what I had. Probably a Palm Pilot and a cell phone, right? Uh, yeah, sounds right. And I think we were just starting emails in, in those days. But I was really happy with them. I mean, I just worked on the movie for a week or so. I, I worked with Jay Baruchel before. I didn't know Matt Johnson. And uh, he had a really interesting technique of working. Plus, he's Matt's a wonderful actor, too. He's very good in this movie. And I uh, I just had a great time with them. And then when I saw the movie, I was really impressed with it. It was... Uh, I knew it was going to be good, but I, it went way beyond my expectations. It's a terrific uh, film. And the other more recent film I did, which is now starting to make a circuit uh, of festivals, and it won the Rome uh, Film Festival Audience Award, is a film that is a black-and-white, single-shot film, which I really want to talk about, called Shtetl, which is the Yiddish word for village. And it was shot six months before the Russian invasion, mm. uh, the production, a Ukrainian film. Uh, they all in the language of Yiddish, which is my first language, along with French, before I spoke English. So I got to perform in Yiddish, something my father started doing when he was a young man in Poland, and Hitler stopped all that. Mm. When, I, when I was a kid, I thought Hitler must have seen my dad in a play and didn't want him to perform anymore. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, that's been making the film festivals. It was just at the Jewish Film Festival, uh, Washington Film Festival, many, many festivals. It's going to be, uh, there's going to be a co-sponsored event of this with Jamie Raskin sponsoring this um, screening in Washington at the end of July. So wow. we're, we're pretty proud. It's a very modest movie, but in the sense of budget, but it's a, quite an extraordinary uh, film. Very proud of it. You know, you speak that you, you talk about speaking Yiddish. Um, I, I'm Jewish. My parents spoke Yiddish. You know, they spoke Yiddish. Their their parents actually, um, a lot of their parent, the parents of that generation, my parents' generation, didn't speak English. So it was like you speak um, English to us, and we'll speak Yiddish to you. So my parents never taught. We have five kids. She never taught any of us how to speak Yiddish because they like to talk about us in front of us right. and they would speak Yiddish. So whenever they were speaking Yiddish, it was like, oh, man, this is probably really juicy. What are they talking about? Well, with my parents, it was Polish because uh, Yiddish, I was fluent in. And I grew up in an immigrant neighborhood, uh, <clears throat> a working class French Canadian neighborhood in Montreal. So it was really street French, which is called Joal, which is an argot, um, a dialect of working-class French Canadians back in those days, and Yiddish. There were a lot of immigrants in, in on those streets. And so I spoke a very strange melange of of uh, street French and Yiddish. And if my parents didn't want me to understand something, then I speak in Polish. Yeah. But I never got to perform in Yiddish. And uh, see if I've got a photograph while we're talking of what I looked like in this movie. It's pretty extraordinary. My fa I wish my fa parents were alive to, you know, to see... So it's a single shot black and white film. Well, a single shot in the sense like 1917 is, right? Right. Yeah, right. Or. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah, I played the rabbi of this village. Single shot in the sense like 
Birdman is or 1917, which is a series of master shots that are then digitally stitched together, one end and the other end. So it feels like one, uh, it's a, it's a day in the life of this shtetl, which is a, a very unusual film and really will give a picture of what that, I mean, there were thousands of them all over Eastern Europe, all destroyed during the Second World War, but they, and they had existed for 400 years, but they were, our impression of that village life is really, uh, comes from Fiddler on the Roof, probably, and really is not accurate. The the village life as portrayed in this movie is filled with uh, atheists, very religious people, communists, Zionists, feminists. It's a very volatile, vibrant strife. You know, I mean, very very a, a living organism, uh, which is. Uh, very, very rarely been painted, except in photographs. So uh, it's quite extraordinary and um, hasn't got a release yet. I think it's making its way through festivals and trying to figure out what theaters it'll survive in before it's sold to digital streaming or whatever it is. So, right, right. Yeah. So that that was really an unusual experience for me, uh, you know, doing a movie in Yiddish. I mean, there were two. Sorry to go on about this movie. but No, it's no, please. Brain. Uh, and it was, um, there were two, I, my Yiddish was like a 35%, you know, that's being generous because I hadn't spoken it in a long time. Like, it'd get by. And Yiddish is, I don't know if, you're, if your viewers know this or your audience knows this, but Yiddish is German. It's essentially the German language. Uh, it is a dialect of German, uh, a thousand years old. And so if you speak Yiddish, you can understand German pretty much. Now, hmm. it's assimilated words from every culture where Jews went in the diaspora, Polish words, English words, French words. Uh, but it is essentially German. So having uh, an opportunity to, I, I, you know, to do this was amazing. There were only two other people. One, uh, Moshe LaBelle, who plays the lead in the movie, was himself, uh, had left the Hasidic community in Brooklyn to become an artist and actor. And so his Yiddish was 100%. And there was um, uh, uh, Eli Rosen, who was our, uh, also in the movie, but our consultant, uh, also was a refugee from uh, the Hasidic world there at 100%. But everybody else learned it phonetically. So it was pretty interesting and amazing movie. Anyway, I won't go on and on about yeah. it. I'm just about that film. And if your audience gets the sense to see, to see it, Shtetl, S-H-T-T-L then um, they should go, especially see it in an audience. It has a powerful impact if it's seen with a lot of people, like a lot of movies do. So this has to hit really close to home, right? Because, uh, you know, I, I flipped through your book. I, I would love to say I read your entire book, uh, but I, I didn't necessarily have time. But I went through uh, so many miracles. It's an amazing story about your parents during World War II. Uh, describe Now, does that ring differently now that you've done this particular film? Well, the difference is that uh, I have now written, I spent the last four years writing a play about this. It's not my first time as a playwright. Um, I had a play on Terrible Advice about 10, 11 years ago, both in London and in, it was translated in German into into German. It was played in Berlin. So, but I'd, I'd written this book and I'd also made a documentary film of the same title, So Many Miracles, which is the story of... Um, 
1986 and the last years of communism in Poland, together with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, I produced a documentary, which was essentially a reunion between my parents and the farmers that had hidden them for two and a half. Wow. Yeah. That's played all over the world. But uh, I decided that I hadn't told the whole story. And I started working on a play about four years ago, and I completed the play. And I've now written an adaptation of it as a screenplay. It's called All in the Telling. And I've done readings of the play. We're now searching for a director for the play. I have a producer. We're raising money for it. And I've also written a screenplay that I want to direct of this piece. And that, what essentially that is, is a, a kind of, a, it's an adaptation of my book and the documentary film. It's how the writing of the book and the making of this documentary film uh, affected three generations of my family, my parents' generation, my generation, and my daughters. My daughter's now 32, her and my son is 28, their generation. So in a way, it's about intergenerational trauma, should relate to a lot of cultures and a lot of different people, whether you're Jewish, Black, Indigenous, um, and, it, and, and it doesn't matter. It really is about family. It's also a comedy, which you'll find surprising. And so a lot of it is very, very funny. Uh, because of, and I don't pull any punches and I don't change any names. So it's about me and my family and, and all the names are accurate. And it's a, and it's, and it's been a labor of love. So uh, I am very present. I mean, I thought I was done with the damn thing after I'd written a book and done a documentary and leave me alone. But I had a good friend, a playwright who said, you're not done with this subject. You haven't told your story. You haven't told your daughter's story, which is quite interesting. You haven't told, talk really about your relationship with your parents, which was difficult and troubled because they weren't accepting the fact that I was with a non-Jewish woman, uh, which were mm. our cultures and the struggles that I went through there. And that's very funny, of course, in retrospect. And, and it, and it's about how I came to write the book and do the documentary, which is really a series of accidents based on lies of me trying to cope with the terrible situation I was in. So that, that is very recent to me. And in the midst of all that, I, you know, I ended up in Ukraine, not my first time, by the way, I'd shot another movie in Ukraine about seven years ago. But, um, so I, I, I knew Ukraine a little bit and I certainly knew the production team. And I'm now, you know, horrified, of course, because most of our crew is on the front lines and, wow. and it's, it's, it's a terrible situation. But yeah, it, it was close to home. Uh, doing a film about a shtetl in Yiddish. Uh, yeah, kind of an, an amazing experience that I didn't expect to have happened to me in my career. So how how old were you when you were aware of uh, your parents' experience uh, in World War II? When did they start talking to you about it? It's a really good question. Uh, and part of what my play is about. Uh, I don't remember a time where I didn't know about it. And I think if you're if you're an indigenous person or if you're black in America, there isn't a time where you don't know about it. Hmm. You know about it from birth. You don't remember a time where you don't know that you've got to be careful if the police are around, if you're black and if you're driving a car or, or wherever you are, or if you're indigenous and you're dealing with racism, or if you're other, in any case, if you're a part of the LGBTQ community, if you're, your otherness identifies you from a very young age. My wife and I had a long discussion before my daughter was, just as my daughter was born, about when we would introduce her. I believe that Jewish children, or at least our, my wife and I believed, that Jewish children are told way too young mm. about genocide and the Holocaust. I don't believe that children are able to cope with that. Uh, and why should they know about genocide uh, at a young age? Why? Well, what, what would be the purpose of it? 
um, they're taught way too young about the horrors of the world, and there's no reason for it. And we, our children were educated in the Waldorf Rudolf Steiner school system, and we talked to the school about it. That's, again, part of my play. Uh, and they said, you, we think at the age of 13, when uh, children are beginning to understand how certain events in history have consequences, they can begin to relate events in their own lives that have consequences in their own history, and they're going to be able to add up two and two and be able to see a larger picture. And that's when we did, we didn't introduce my daughter to the book and the documentary until she was 13 years old. And then they asked us, the school asked us to, if we wouldn't mind playing the documentary film for the classroom. And that had, that was its own difficulty and its own adventure because I at the time had a real problem with anything called Holocaust education. And you're going to find that a peculiar sentence. And, there, and this has changed over the years. But in those days, uh, I felt it was exclusionary of other people's tragedies, holocausts, and genocide. Hmm. And I, over the years, Holocaust education has completely transformed into holding hands and become, uh, uh, you know, together with uh, anti-race hatred and anti-race uh, racism. And it is joins hands with other cultures and other tragedies. But at the time, I was very nervous about it. And I had had experiences that weren't pleasant. Uh, I'm talking about within the Jewish community, uh, going around trying to, you know, promote my book, which was published by Penguin. And, you know, uh, having uh, second generation, which is what I'm called, which is children of survivors, going to groups to talk about the book. And their reaction to me was awful, very awful. Why? Why would it be awful? Because they wanted me to talk about how awful the Poles were. And they didn't want me to be a historian. They didn't want a story about how Polish people saved my parents' lives. And they and they wanted their own agenda. And, uh, and I that soured me to the whole process. So the only way I was willing to uh, play a documentary film for a classroom of children was if the school would agree to uh, personal history week so that it would inspire the children to investigate their own backgrounds and then share that with the classroom. Mm. It became very difficult when we found out that one of my daughter's best friends was the great granddaughter of an SS. Oh, wow. So you can imagine wow. how the play starts to have its own drama. Yeah. Right yeah. said about that. Wow. You know, it's it's really interesting. I, I traveled years ago. I went to Spain and we met an older Jewish couple. And, you know, growing up Jewish and dealing with anti-Semitism, you know, so much of my life, um, you know, you have a feeling that all Germans are horrible people, you know. And uh, it was interesting how when the conversation was brought up about what happened during that time in history, they were saying how they didn't know their parents. They didn't know anything about it. Their parents didn't know anything about it. And I found it kind of hard to believe that they didn't. But they said that we took in Jewish families. You know, in the beginning, we didn't know what was going on. Um, but it's it's difficult in some ways, you know, knowing what what happened. Um, there were a lot of German people that that actually were not horrible people, you know, or just people. I mean, part of what my play is about and my attitude towards this is that at one point I asked the classroom after showing them documentary film, 
which is quite dramatic, right? These people who are saved and hidden for two and a half years, whether they think this, I asked these 13 and 14 year olds, whether they think that my family story is more dramatic than their family story. And of course, 30 hands went up in the air. And I said, well, no, the truth is that within two generations of your family, you will find stories of great courage, lives saved miraculously at the last second, stories of murder, great love affairs, and stories of adventure, tragedy, and comedy that are as profound and as rich as any of the great novels ever written within your own family, if if you know who to ask, mm. and if you have willingness to ask the questions. And I know that that's true of all of our families of the human race, is that there is a common humanity in the sense that in our own backgrounds, whatever culture you are, German, Israeli, Jewish, whoever you are, there are perpetrators, there are victims, there are bystanders, there are heroes and there are cowards, sometimes all in the same person. Hmm. And uh, you, you investigate these things in order to find out that you do have a common humanity with other people and other people's stories. What's going on in the world in authoritarian regimes is the, is the revisionism of history. Even in America, the disallowance, the beginning to censor our own American history about slavery and treatment of genocide of the indigenous peoples and other stories that are being kept from uh, being taught by, by authoritarian uh, regimes or an attitude of uh, revising history with a with a racist agenda, in my opinion, hmm. and this is not uncommon. This has happened throughout time, um, which is why my play is called "All in the Telling," uh, because it is all in the telling. It is in the telling uh, from one generation to another. It's, it's sharing our history, which begins to make us hold hands with other people's histories. Yeah. That's thing in the world, I think. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. I want to ask about a few of your films, if that's okay. So I read a nugget that Jack Nicholson helped you get the role in Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. <laughs> I was shooting a, a movie called Man Trouble with Jack while my wife was pregnant with uh, my daughter Hannah uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, I remember going into the makeup trailer and I'm, I'm not good at imitations, but I'll try. And he had like, these frozen cucumber slices on his eyes to get them. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you're going to be auditioning for my pal, Clint Eastwood. I'll give you a little bit of advice. And I, I said, you know, Jack, when's the last time you auditioned for anything? I mean, I think <laughs> advice about being a movie star, but I don't know about giving me advice to audition. I mean, you probably auditioned 35 years ago. And he says, so you think I'm an asshole? And, <laughs> and I, I was just kidding him. And he said, look, and he, yeah, he did. Now, this was 1991, and people were not doing self-tapes. And he said, look, I know Clint, and you're not going to meet him. I said, in an audition. I said, I'm not. He said, no, you'll find out why. I, I mean, he really doesn't like to meet actors. And I, eventually, I found out why, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But uh, so you're going to end up in a casting office with a camera and a fluorescent light. Don't do it. Buy a camera and don't just shoot the scenes that they're asking you to do. Go do more than is required in every area, in every way. So I bought a camera 
I didn't have a good digital camera. And this is way, this is, you know, 32 years ago. It's before self-tapes. And I, you know, shot with some costume stuff. And I shot, I shot scenes, you know, with this character. I was cast within five days. I was cast very fast and uh, sent the tape in. Of course, casting directors would love that. I mean, they, they don't want you, they, if you can avoid, they can avoid you coming into their office, taking their time out. But I was already uh, at the level at that uh, 32 years ago where I could get that audition because, and get it seen. That That's half the battle for actors because there's thousands of people who want to audition for every role. But I was luckily at the level where I could have an audition, right? Yeah. When I met Clint, he said, well, you know, I don't meet actors. I said, why? You're an actor. Why wouldn't you want to meet actors? He said, because I don't know how to say no to actors. I have such sympathy for actors. I, I really would, I need a distance. Otherwise, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm too soft hearted for it. And it's true. It's, it's, it's the way he was. I don't know if he still is that way, but I suspect he, he really had, was a, an interesting, fascinating director more so than any other director I've ever worked with. You know, I saw the movie just recently and, um, and I, I looked at it much differently, knowing that we were going to interview you. And when your character is introduced, you have like hardly any lines at all. But we see you on camera quite a bit before you actually speak. I think you say thank you, maybe the first thing that you say. And maybe four minutes goes by. But within that, we see you and we see you react. And there were a couple of times where you were, uh, it looked like you were going to say something, but you didn't say something. And I'm curious if that was written in the script for you to do that. Uh, was that Clint's decision or was that an actor's decision? It's a really interesting decision. I'll tell you a lot about Clint Eastwood. So when we started working, I didn't know anything about him as a director. And I read this, you know, it was a great script. And I, I went to Clint and I said, Clint, can I talk to you about uh, something about the role. I said, sure. And I said, well, I don't have any lines. and I don't, I don't want any at the beginning of the movie, but the attitude that's written in the stage directions for this character, W.W. Beauchamp was the name of the character, is written as quite a nervous fellow, you know, just in the stage directions. And I don't think that's right. He said, you don't. I said, no, I, I think he's never been to the West. He's just written about it. And I think he's traveling with English Bob, a famous gunslinger. And I think he should be, he should have an attitude that's quite, you know, cocky and full of himself until he's faced with all these guns and then he's going to pee his pants, right? Yeah. So I, I think that I should, my attitude should change. And so Clint Eastwood said the following sentence. And you're asking me this because. <laughs> because you're the director and I figure you have an opinion that you know I'm changing I'm asking to change what's written in the stage directions you're the director I'm talking to you about it he said I see well you'll get to know me Saul you're in charge of the department called W.W. Bochamp if I could play this role I'd play it I don't know the answer to your question I huh. can I could make up an answer and say you're right or you're wrong. I don't know. Um, you could have said to me, I want to be even more frightened at the beginning, whatever. I'll be sure when you're on set to let you know if you do something that I don't understand. Now, I can tell you that I never in the entire shoot watched him direct, saw him direct an actor. Hmm. Uh -huh. he, he chose the script. 
He chose the crew. He's at the, the soul of this man is a jazz musician. He's a jazz pianist. And you don't tell when you're playing jazz, you don't turn to the saxophonist and give him notes on his solo. Hmm. You're jam. Yeah. yeah. And that's his attitude towards directing. I don't know if it still is, but it was then. I hear also, by the way, he's a very, it's a very quiet set that, yeah. that he, and that he never says action. Is that true? I never heard. He just felt that, you know, suddenly the actors were, <laughs> you have to be he's very conscious of the vulnerability of, of performers. So he would say things, all right, well, whenever you're ready, you can go ahead now. Okay, let's stop now for a minute. And uh, no, you know, I never heard action or cut because action, you know, puts you on a kind of a, he, he didn't like that feeling. Uh, again, it, it really has to do with his sensitivity to actors' vulnerabilities and on set. And he wanted the best out of people. And he wanted people to feel they could make mistakes when, when working just as you would want if you're getting a group of jazz combo together and you're jamming for the first time. So it had, he had that, that feeling to him, uh, of a collaborative set. What that means is that if you're working there, there, I've worked with some great visionaries like Brian De Palma, for example. But Brian De Palma is, a, is like the opposite end of genius. Uh, Brian De Palma, who's an aficionado and a student of Hitchcock's and yeah. plans everything very carefully. If I was to put a T-shirt on Brian De Palma and a T-shirt on Clint Eastwood, on Brian De Palma's T-shirt on the front, it would say, my vision. Mm. And on the back, it would say, shall be realized. Hmm. <laughs> I would put that a t-shirt on Clint, it would say my vision on the front. And on the back, it would say, hopefully will be transcended. Hmm. And in order to transcend a vision, you have to risk it. Which is why not all of Clint's movies work, I guess. Yeah. And and, and you, you have to risk it. And some directors or director auteurs aren't born that way. He is, as I say, more of a jazz musician. So we would joke on our set during Unforgiven was we used to have a, a shorthand term and a shorthand term was five people in France. What does that mean? It meant that we thought that's who would see this movie. Really? Wow. I mean, there's Clint Eastwood is shooting an unarmed 17 year old in this movie. We yeah. thought it was an art film Western. Uh, we loved it. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Loved the movie and the script and he didn't change a word of it. I mean, it was all white pages when we finished. There was nothing changed in that script. He had bought it from Francis Ford Coppola in 1982 or something like that. He, Francis Ford Coppola owned it and had bought it to make his first Western from David Peoples, who great screenwriter who I got to spend some time with. A couple of years later, I found out the story about that adventure. I mean, he never expected anything like that to happen to him again in his life. It was something that he wrote on spec in 1977 or something. You know, he gets to see a, a private screening. I didn't know it was going to be a private screening. He's invited to a screening. And he just him and Clint, and he sees this movie, and it's exactly what he wrote. I mean, when is a screenwriter going to see that? Right, right. So that was a very unusual, uh, a very unusual experience for everybody, for everybody involved. 
Um, but no, we thought we were, we were in a great movie that was going to be seen by five people in France. Right. That's amazing. That's amazing. And it's, you know, it's a, it's an unbelievable, you know, it won, it's, it won best picture, it won best director, it won all kinds of awards. Um, and the, the idea that you didn't know that there was an odd, because it was a great revisionist Western, right? In a, in a way, it's like sort of a capstone to Eastwood's career as a cowboy, right? It wasn't written for Eastwood. And um, it was only when Eastwood read it uh, as a writing sample. I believe what happened was David Peoples' agent sent it to Malpaso, Clint's, the name of Clint's uh, production company, as a writing sample of this David Peoples, who had already written Blade Runner. You know, it was a well-known. Sure. And so this is an example of David Peoples writing Westerns. And he said, what do you mean example? What about this? This is great. And found out that, no, he couldn't sell it because it was owned outright by Francis Ford Coppola. So he called Francis and bought it because Zoetrope was going under. And they were selling, you know, I think uh, all the furniture even. Hmm. Whatever they were doing, he had to he sold it. And then Clint waited 10 years, 9 or 10 years, because he thought he was too young at the age of 51 or 52 to play uh, William H. William Money. He wanted to be in his 60s. He wanted to be older before he played that role. Uh, yeah. No. So I want to ask you about an, another picture. Um, and I, I love this movie. I actually think this is a very underrated movie. Uh, it's directed by Rod Lurie. It's called The Candidate. And I would argue is like one of the great Tender. classic movies about politics. The Contender. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, the Contender. Yeah, The Candidate was the Eastwood or the uh, Redford movie. Yeah, The Contender. Um, so I remember Jeff Bridges as president saying that the oatmeal cookies have got raisins so big, they're like grapes. I just, that, that sticks with me for some reason. You play the, the uh, press secretary. Bridges just seems like the coolest, most mellow guy in the world, right? Well, my real adventures with him were not on that movie. Um, uh, I did a movie years earlier called Against All Odds. Which oh, is sure. Mm. Taylor Hackford where I played his sports agent. That's where I really got to know um, Jeff and his attitudes, the Zen of movie acting. He was my first mentor, not intentionally, maybe, but I, I had come from the world of Canadian television and uh, movie making and mostly television, CBC. And I was suddenly thrown into a Hollywood world. Uh, and I, if you want to talk about Jeff Bridges, then it would be really against all odds that I could tell you about. And I remember, this is a great Jeff Bridges story. Uh, I was doing a scene at a big nightclub, and I remember, um, oh God, I wish I could remember the name of the band, something in the coconuts. Um, you know, a, a large group. Uh, we shot Jeff, Jeff's side of the table, which was against a brick wall. And then there was this big room with this um, band on stage and 150, 200 extras. And that was behind me. And I felt all this responsibility, you know, uh, and to get it right, because they all had to mime and work their asses off behind me. And Jeff's on the other side of the table and Taylor, and I nailed it in the first take, because that's what I was used to having to do. Film was expensive in Canada and you're shooting. And I, and I, and I nailed it. And Taylor said, that was great. Let's do another one. And then did another one. And then something went wrong. And then, 
I did another one and he said, it was great. I said, well, do you need any? No, no, let's just do another one. And then we were into take seven or so or eight and I'm starting to sweat and I'm starting to feel, I don't maybe want something. And, and Jeff noticed that I was nervous and he, and he said, uh, this is your first time doing a big Hollywood movie. I said, yeah, yeah. He said, well, what do you, what, what did you, let me, let me explain something to you. You're nervous. I said, well, I got all these extras behind me and I, you know, I just want to get it right. And he said, yeah. So where is all this focus right now? He says, on me. He said, right. You've got this many millions of dollars toy that is right now just focused on you. And you're getting upset because you think you nailed it, which you did in the first take. And now he just keeps wanting to do takes. But you see, Taylor Hackford just shot and just directed one of the biggest hits in the last 10 years called An Officer and a Gentleman. Yeah. It came off that movie. And right now, Taylor is king of the world in Hollywood. He can do whatever he wants. And he just is having fun, but you've stopped having fun, haven't you? Mm. Yeah. He said, Saul, just enjoy yourself. So I started making shit up and improvising and fucking around. And, <laughs> and, um, and the, I don't know how many, 25, I don't know how many takes we did, but I didn't care anymore. So it was just Jeff's allowing me to understand what I was in. You know, he had grown up in it, right? Yeah. And, Made me understand. Did they use your straight take or did they use the one where you're fucking combination around? of things? Yeah. Yeah. So what was it uh what was it like on a uh um Oliver Stone set uh during Wall Street? And and I one specific thing I wanted to ask you in Michael Douglas's the the iconic greed is good speech, what was the vibe in the room when he was doing that? You know, we were just doing a movie. Um, I mean, I knew my Oliver. Well, the, the vibe was just that, you know that Mike Douglas was Mike, Michael was great on, on the scene. I was just an essentially an extra in the audience in the scene, and it was a great, it was a beautifully written speech, and it was I'd been in beautifully written speech. I mean, you know, I don't think anybody is aware or was would be aware that greed is good would became a mantra, um, you know, a mantra of business world in, in America in the eighties. I'm sure not. Um, it, because it was, it came so honestly out of uh, Oliver Stone's father's experiences. Um, my, my experience with that movie is anecdotal and I have a, a funnier story than that, which is how I got this role. And I had been working on a play directed by Risa Brayman, who was, uh, Brayman's Hopkins was a casting that movie and she was a casting director quite a well-known one and uh, she also a director and i was doing a play in new york that she was directing for, for no money and so she you know wanted to uh, pay me back for working for no money on this play and she said well i'm doing this movie you know it's a big movie oliver stone is doing and let's get you into an audition now i knew that uh, she told me god everybody wants to play this role uh, not my role. I mean, the role of the Michael Douglas. I wasn't auditioning for that, but like Marlon Brando wanted to play it. Robert De Niro. Wow. Yeah. All these people yeah. wanted to play this role. It was a, it was a really great role of Gordon Gecko. And when I met, um, Oliver, uh, Stone, I, she gave me a hint about what he was like. And, um, he recognized me from a couple of things and he said, Oh, well, do you have anything against small roles? And I said, you've got, I can't read the script. You're not letting the script out. And there's like movie stars sitting in the hallway waiting to audition for you. So no, I have nothing against small roles, but I got to read them, man. I got to know what I'm doing. I don't just want the gig. I want to play 
something for a reason. He said, he laughed and he said, okay, uh, you know, show him this role, this role, this role, this role. Go out, read, the, read those scenes and tell me which role you're interested in. So I came back and this is, what was this, right? What year was this? 87, something like that? Sounds right, yeah. And, you know, I was uh, 38, I looked closer to 30. And uh, and I I said, I want to play this role, the lawyer role. And he said, oh, no, I shouldn't have showed you that. I want a 60-year-old to play that role. He said, well, I said, well, that's the role I want. Hmm. <laughs> I said, Why? I said, because I'm trying to finance my documentary film. I'm going back to Poland. So it was 1986. And, uh, and I need, and this character works in about nine different locations. You're going to have to hire me for at least nine weeks. Hmm. It's not the role. I said, no, it's the money. And he said, oh, you're hired. That's a Republican attitude. I love that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, okay. um, you know what? I'm just, just one yeah, thing, ahead, Steve, sir. before we, we go, I wanted to ask you, what was the first film role that you got that you didn't have to audition for? The very first film I ever did, uh, was a movie that I didn't audition for. It was a Canadian film called, you see, I was well known in Canada at the time. It was a Canadian film called Agency, not a very good movie, but with Robert Mitchum. And, uh, I played a good role in that. I think I was even nominated for that role. And it was, but not a great movie, kind of espionage movie. I didn't audition for that movie. Wow. Your first role. Well, no, it wasn't my first role. I'd done 10 leading roles on CBC by that point. Oh, oh okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. about a feature film. So the first feature film I ever shot that I was ever in was Agency, and I didn't audition for that. I mean, nice. it's been back and forth for me. Sometimes I'm offered a role. Sometimes I audition. Sometimes it's a meeting. It's a, a lot of different things. From yeah, working. yeah. Sure, well, sure, listen, sure. Listen, in addition to having just a, a an unbelievable career, you're a great storyteller. And uh, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, Blackberry is streaming on Apple. Uh, your uh, movie that is touring right now, or is on the festival circuit, is called Shettle. S H T T L. Um, and then uh, your play, which we telling, which we're hoping will get on uh, as soon as I can get the right director and raise the money, which we're which we're doing. Awesome, awesome. Well, this has been great, Saul. Thank you so much for sharing some time with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Saul. There you have it. There is Saul Rubinek joining us. And uh, yeah, the story of his parents, just amazing. I mean, hidden by Polish farmers during World War II, um, just an incredible story. And I don't know how that, and it sounds like he has used the book and the play and the documentary to sort of exercise some demons and tell a story uh, that is more uh, uplifting, I guess, uh, a yes. way that, you know, his parents survived and, and he was born in, uh, in Germany. I think he was born in Germany. I think in Germany, he was in like a, um, what was it called? A um, displaced person. Dis- yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So he was born. It's an amazing story. Amazing story. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, we didn't get to ask him this, but I wanted to know when he did the documentary, it was basically reuniting his parents with the couple, the farmers who hid them. Yes. I wanted to know what that feeling must have been like for both both of them. Oh, I can't imagine. 
I yeah, can't imagine. That's an incredible, incredible story. Yeah. Um, well, great guy. I, I look forward to seeing the movie that's on the festival circuit. And uh, Blackberry is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, it's at like 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, go check that out. Saul, very good guy and very good storyteller. I, I love that. Um, I want to remind people of a couple of things. First of all, we are now on YouTube. So if you go to youtube.com and search Culture Pop Podcast, you can find our channel and you can subscribe to it. If you're watching right now, by the way, on YouTube, you already found our channel. So I, I guess that's not necessary. But, you're but if, you're, if you're listening, you can go watch the show. Um, and of course, we're on Spotify and we're on Apple and on YouTube, on Spotify, on Apple. We would love to uh, to hear from you, uh, comment about the show, question about the show, question about the guest, anything like that. And we will respond to everything for you because we appreciate you. We especially appreciate, we've got a term in radio. I don't know if it's appropriate here called P1s. Do you know, a P1 is somebody who's just totally locked into your stuff. So you were at the Mandy Awards with us. Those were all P1s. Those are all people that live and die. So if you're somebody that, waits for the podcast, listens to the pot. We we want to do something for you. And I'm thinking, Sue, yeah. I'm going to have some uh should I have t shirts or hoodies made? What which one do you think? I'm a hoodie huh. guy. I'm a I'm a hoodie person. I mean now, that would be amazing to get some podcast, swag for people. Hoodies? Wow. Yeah. So for our hardcore listeners, I'm going to look into that too. Uh, we appreciate you listening very much and watching very much. Thank you so much. Um and Sue, great seeing you. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.